Welcome to Slaking Thirsts, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart, who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. So friends, tonight in the gospel, we have this this radical response from Simon and Andrew, James and John, and as I was praying with their radical response, I was, I was drawn to another gospel passage from the Gospel of John, and I want to frame everything I want to share tonight in this, uh, in this lens. So this is from the 12th chapter of John's gospel. This is what we hear. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly aromatic nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the ointment. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 days' wages and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and, he, and as he had the money box, he used to take what was, it, was put into it. Jesus said, let her alone, let her keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This was the scene that kept coming back this week. In fact, this scene appears in the Gospel of Matthew as well. It's an unnamed woman who takes the jar of alabaster and breaks it open and pours out the fragrant nard. And her version, it's not the feet, it's the head. I kind of like the head version. But in Matthew's version, he says this about this woman and about this gesture of pouring out this jar of costly ointment that would, he says it's a 300 denarii, which is 300 days wages. This is what Jesus says about this gesture. He says, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told in memory of her. This is not insignificant, is the point. Like Jesus is saying, this is an immensely powerful and important gesture. And notice, please, notice who it was who was recommending that something practical be done with the nard. What a waste. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. That would have made a lot more sense, right? Who does Jesus praise? Who does Jesus praise? The one who says, do something practical, do something reasonable? No, that's not who Jesus praises. Who Jesus praises is the one who is prodigal. He praises her. He praises her for her prodigality, for her lavishness. He praises what seems like waste. This is significant. He praises her for pouring it all out on him. Something that would cost 300 days wages that, yes, of course, it could have been given to the poor. But he says, no, no, this gesture significant. Why? Because it was an expression of love, and love pushes us. It always moves us to do wildly impractical things. That's what love does. That is what love does. Love is the very thing. It moved, it moved God to leap down from the throne room of glory to become a zygote in Mary's immaculate womb, and then become a fetus, and then a man with flesh and blood and bones who had the capacity to die on a cross, right? He went to the cross suffering as his own the consequences of our sin. This is madness. Pope Benedict described God's love, his love for us. He described it as a mad 
eros, this madness in God's love. That wherever we see prodigality or lavishness or, or wastefulness, it's a, sign, it's a sign of God's love in the world. That's what his love looks like. It's mad. It's absurd. Right? I, wanted to start, I wanted to start with that section from John. I wanted to story, start with that story as a frame of reference, like I said, to understand this gospel call that we hear today, right? So Jesus, he sees Simon and Andrew. He sees James and John. And he says to them as he's walking by on the seashore of Galilee, come after me. And I will make you fishers of men. And what do they do? They drop their nets and they go. And where did it ultimately lead them? Where did it take them? It took them ultimately to their own martyrdoms. To death and through death unto a glory that's just unimaginable, right? But that long road, that long road of their walking their own Paschal mystery, that long road began right here with a tiny moment with momentous courage when they said yes. It all began with a tiny yes. What an absurdity, though, it was. What recklessness. It feels, when you hear how it's narrated, it feels so reckless. It feels so uncalculated, so unmeasured, so, like, risky, wasteful, unthought through. Who does this? If you've seen the, the Chosen series, by the way, who's seen the Chosen series? A lot of us I know have seen the Chosen series. The Chosen series, the directors, they depict this scene in the first season of the Chosen series. And the way they depict it, it's their own imagination, their own, you know, artistic preferences. They depict Zebedee, right, James and John's father, Zebedee. They depict him very enthusiastic about their boys, his boys going off to join Jesus. He's all slapping their backs. and He's like, yeah, go for it. I'm so proud of you. Go do it. And I, I remember watching that and thinking, like, was he really, though? <laughs> like, like, in real life, like, was he that enthusiastic? Was he that excited? Was he that happy? Because it might just be me. It might be my jadedness. I don't know. But my gut says that he probably wasn't. My gut says that he probably wasn't. I'm sure he was probably a lot like others in town who were saying things like, like Judas, boys, this is crazy. What are you doing? Don't waste your lives like this. Like, you have responsibilities. And he's just standing there with the nets. Like, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, we got to go. I just can't picture him being super enthusiastic. I, I mean, maybe I'm reading it through the lens of my own parents. My parents were not super enthusiastic when I first told them I was thinking about going to the seminary. There's a lot of parents who aren't super enthusiastic when their sons or daughters tell them, you know, hey, I'm thinking about, I'm just thinking about seminary. I'm thinking about discernment or I'm thinking about looking at this religious community. A lot of parents are like the hackles come up. They balk. They say, ah, this, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. Like I said, my parents were certainly not support. I don't think they'd mind me telling them. Well, I don't know if they, I, well, I'll find out later if they mind. <laughs> but they were not supportive. They were not supportive in the least. Um, I had my initial conversion. You probably know this story. I've probably shared it before. But I had my initial conversion, my reversion. I was baptized Catholic, first communion, first reconciliation, those things, second grade. But I didn't have a conversion until my 11th grade year of high school, my junior year of high school. And uh, I met the person of Jesus, fell really in love with this church and church teaching. And, and anyway, it was, it was in that context that I began to think about the question began to bubble up thinking about the idea of discernment and priesthood and seminary. There, you have to understand, too, that at my home parish at St. Mary in Hudson, it was, there was a whole culture of vocations. There were lots of guys who had gone to the seminary. So it wasn't a weird thought to, to picture yourself going to this place. 
because these were cool guys, normal guys, and, and it was just normal that if you were a young man who was enthusiastic about your faith, people were going to be asking you, have you thought about the priesthood? You go to the daily mass and every old lady's like, I think you'd be a great priest. You're like, get away from me, lady, right? That's how it was. That's how it was. Father Damien Ferentz, who I know a lot of you know, he was the parochial vicar at St. Mary's for my four years of high school, and he saw something in me, right? He, he encouraged me to think about it. He even, he even went so far one time to write me a letter. He wrote me a letter where he outlined various gifts that he saw in me, where he said, like, I think that, I just think you could use these gifts in priesthood. I think it would be a great blessing to the church. And I only, I never got the letter. Here's the story. My mom intercepted the letter. True story. She intercepted the letter. She opened the letter. It was addressed to me. She opened it. That's a federal crime, I think. Anyway, (laughs) she opened the letter, read the letter, tore up the letter, threw it away, called Father Damien and said, you leave my son alone, right? Well, he didn't, and neither did the Lord, right? Obviously, like, I got to the seminary. I did one year at the University of Dayton. That was my Jonah year, first reading, Jonah, right? God says, go to Nineveh. He's like, psych, I'm going this way. That's what I did. I went to Dayton. I went that way, trying to make myself happy on my own terms. Turns out, that doesn't work. So, made my way to the seminary in the fall of 2008. So anyway, why were my parents scared of this? Why did they balk at this? Why, did, why do so many parents put up such a fight with this? They were scared because, well, I'll put it this way. I, fundamentally, they forgot or they just never knew in the first place. Many parents forget or they never know in the first place that their kids, your kids, they're God's kids first. And that's a big deal. Like, of course, it's natural for every parent to think about and dream about your child's future, but a lot of parents start planning out the plan, right? But it's not your plan. It's not your future to plan. It's the Lord who says, I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans I have for you, plans for a future full of hope, right? It's the Lord who says, I am the potter, you are the clay. How often we say, I'm the clay and I'm the potter. Let me make myself, make my life how I want it to be. Every parent wants their child to be happy. And and my parents, they just couldn't fathom. Most parents just can't fathom how this vocation of priesthood, going to a seminary, they can't fathom how that would have ever made me happy. My mom and dad say the day they dropped me off at the seminary was one of the worst days of their life. They thought, what have we done? They've come around quite a bit, I'll tell you that later. But they couldn't imagine how this would have made me happy. And why? Because, and I think this is the biggest reason, many parents themselves have never met the Lord. They've never encountered him. They've never been encountered by him. They've never met this man. Because to meet this man is to touch lightning. To meet this man is to encounter a love that relativizes every other good in existence. It's to meet him is to find the, girl, the pearl of great price that's worth selling everything to buy. It's to, it's to find the, the treasure buried in the field that's worth selling everything to buy the field to get the treasure. To meet this man, like what you do when you meet him is you drop your nets. You break the alabaster jar of your life and you pour out the nard because the most reasonable thing to do in the presence of the absolute good is to be absolutely unreasonable. That's the most reasonable thing to do in the presence of the absolute good is to be absolutely unreasonable. 
It's not a syllogism. It, you can't say, let me explain it A to B, B to C, this is Y, D. It doesn't make sense. All you can know to say, it's all I knew to say was, wherever he is, that's where I have to be. Because following him, and I'll just say it for the sake of the homily tonight, following him particularly in the priestly vocation, it is such a wild ride. It is such a wild ride. Like, I am, I am quite confident, I am quite confident that we have many young men in this parish who are hearing, are just beginning to hear the whispers of the great shepherd saying, come after me, come after me. It's, it's just like in, in uh, the Kevin Costner movie, Field of Dreams, right? Kevin Costner, who plays that character, Ray, who starts hearing this mysterious voice, ease his pain. If you build it, they will come, right? He hears this mysterious voice, and he doesn't understand what it means. He doesn't understand where it's coming from, what it means. All he knows all he knows is that it's haunting him and beckoning him and it's, it's leading him out on some adventure, out somewhere. And like somehow the whole meaning of his life and the whole fullness of the desires of his heart is somehow bound up in obedience to this voice. That's the truth. And I think that that's happening in the hearts of many young people in this parish. Like I said, particularly young men in this parish. I think they're hearing that whisper that whisper when, like, when they're buttoning up their cassocks to serve mass, and I've see, I see it when they look at themselves in the mirror, and they're just, you can see them wondering, right? Or I, I think they're hearing it when they're kneeling at the altar during the Lamb of God, and they're just caught up in the sense of there's something awe-filled and majestic happening here. Or I think they're hearing it when they sit with him, Jesus, in adoration, and our vine nights on Monday nights or with adore nights with 1010, like, I think they're hearing it when they look at the culture and they look at people around them, people on social media who supposedly have the quote-unquote good life and the good life, it just looks empty and hollow and shallow and banal to the highest degree. It looks mediocre and safe. I think they're hearing it when, when they hear in their own hearts a desire to be of service, to make an impact, to touch and affect the lives of other people, to, to do something remarkable, to be something remarkable. Like, I, I know there's, there's some young brothers at Mass tonight here, and I was saying it this morning, but like, let me just tell you from my own heart, as your spiritual father, but also as a brother in the faith, let me just tell you, I was scared to say yes. I was scared to say yes. I think any priest who says that he wasn't scared is lying to you. <laughs> I was scared to say yes. And to be honest, there's still days where I'm, I'm scared of what my yes means, what it's going to mean. But this is what I've become utterly convinced of in my almost eight years of priesthood. Jesus says, whoever gives up wife or family or children or lands or mother or father for my sake he says this, receives a hundredfold in this life. I am, I am utterly convinced of it because I've experienced it, that he is not lying. He's not exaggerating. He's not speaking in hyperbole. Like, there are desires that I carried in my heart into priesthood that I thought, well, I'm going to be a priest. That has to just go on the shelf. There are desires that I thought that I would never actually get fulfilled in this life, but that's not the God that we have. We have a God of superabundance who who thing, the things that I even thought that I would be giving up, he gave them to me, he gives them to me 
super abundantly in a way that I never imagined. It looked nothing like I was hoping for, yet it perfectly fulfills in exactly the way I had hoped. Like, it's real and it's true. And also in that same section of the gospel, Jesus, where he's saying, whoever gives up this or this or this to follow me, right? He also adds, and with persecutions in this life. He meant that part too. Why? Because to be a priest means that you get to be him in this world. And he provoked one of two options, one of two responses from people. Either they fell down and they said, I will worship you, or they picked up rocks to stone him. Those are the two options. Crown him or crucify him. And if you're called to this vocation, my brothers, both of those will be yours. Both of them are mine. They might come in the same day, one email after another. It's true, though. It's true. You end up suffering people's unrealistic expectations of you as a man. You suffer your own shame and your own poverty when people come to you as a priest looking for Jesus and because of whatever the day is, whatever day you've had, all they run into is the stinky Palm Sunday donkey. You suffer your own poverty. You suffer being misunderstood. You suffer the poverty of being only five loaves and two fish trying to feed the 5,000 when you only still have 24 hours in the day just like everybody else. You suffer that too. He says, follow me. And if we were to ask him where, he'll tell you. He'll say to the cross, to redeem the world. That's where we're going. And if you follow me there, if you come with me there, you'll get to rise with me too. But the dying comes first. The dying comes first. The dying always comes first. He says, if you follow me, then you get to do things in this world. You get to be something in this world that is so unbelievably beautiful. I'm going to end with this. Catherine Doherty, who was a really influential 20th century lay woman, she, was, she wrote a series of beautiful books. She was responsible for bringing uh, this form of retreat to the United States called Pustinia. It was 24 hours in silence in a room. Anyway, she wrote a book called Dear Father, and she was in that book she was trying to express what the priesthood is. She says this about the priesthood, about the priest. At your word, sinners will rise from the death of sin and shed their ghostly wrappings, and who knows, become great saints of God in his love. In truth, you will bring not peace but a sword. You will be a sign of contradiction that will make men think and live. You'll be a minister of fire ordained to spread that fire on the earth. You will also be a minister of restlessness, the dispenser of a new hunger and thirst. You will be hungry with many hungers, but you will fill souls and hearts with the bread of life. You will slake the infinite thirst of men for God with the living waters of truth. You will pray, and heaven will listen, hell will tremble, and death will hear. At your word, a child of sin will become a child of God, a youth will become a soldier of Christ, a sinner, a saint. Hungry men will be filled, dying ones sped homeward in peace. You will fast and do penance, and you will be a vessel filled to the brim. Many will come to drink from these hallowed waters, You will walk apart and multitudes will follow you wherever you go. 
even into the desert. Because they are in your shadow, the desert will bloom. You will be all things to all men. And you, like Christ, will be lifted up for men to see and to follow you. You will not mind being crucified naked on a cross because Christ will be on the other side and you will be lost in the ecstasy of being with him, of being his own. All of this you will be and all of these things will happen to you if you arise and answer the mere whisper that your young soul hears now and that you are not quite sure about. Come after me, he says, and I will make you fishers of men. Amen.